somehow they knew that what they were seeing was a signal that a king had been born in Israel. And not content just to observe that and to know that, these men left their homes, traveled who knows how many, probably hundreds of miles in a part of the world where, let's be honest, it's not super easy to travel, especially back then. It's not, a, not an easy part of the world to travel through. And yet they came all that way because they wanted to see with their own eyes the child whose birth had been signaled by the star. You have to be pretty excited, pretty eager, pretty interested in this child and his significance in order to go through all of that. Right? But when they get to Jerusalem, you could imagine them thinking, okay, they come to Jerusalem, that's the capital, that's where you would expect a king to be. And that's where Herod was, who functioned as sort of the king of the Jews at the time. He wasn't the king, a king in a normal sense because Rome was really ruling Israel. Israel wasn't ruling itself. But Herod was the king, so to speak, of Israel at the time. And the wise men might have expected one of two responses. They might have expected that when they got to Jerusalem, the people would already be celebrating and rejoicing in the birth of their king. And they would be excited to welcome these men from the east who came to join them. In their celebration. But that's not what they found. Or they might have thought, maybe we're the only ones who noticed that star and understood its significance. Maybe we're going to get to Jerusalem and tell the people there, you've had a new king born. And it's going to be good news to them. They're going to be excited to hear that because they don't know it yet. And they're going to rejoice. But that's not the response they encountered either. They didn't know that a king had been born, but they were not excited to hear it. At least Herod wasn't. Verse 3 of Matthew 2 says, When Herod heard, uh, Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. It doesn't say why the rest of Jerusalem was troubled, but knowing Herod's reputation, they might have just been afraid of what Herod was going to do next when he heard a king had been born. Maybe they weren't troubled themselves about the birth of a king so much as troubled about what the outcome was likely to be. Because Herod did not rejoice in the news that the long-awaited king had been born because Herod loved being king. And Herod didn't want another king, regardless of who it was. Whether he fulfilled prophecy or not, Herod was troubled and likely angered by the news that a king had been born. But he hid all that from the wise men. And he, instead of revealing his trouble, he called the Bible scholars together and said, okay guys, these wise men have come saying that they've seen something that signals that our king has been born. Where do the scriptures say this child is supposed to be born? And so they tell him, they quote Micah, and they tell him he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and he passes that on to the wise men, 
And he tells the wise men, you go seek out this child. And when you've found him, you come back and tell me because I want to go and worship him too. Which, of course, was a lie. But that's what he told them. Now, the wise men, they did come to worship the child. Again, not only did they see the star and understand its significance, they left their homes, they traveled all this way, they came to find the child, and when they, verse 10 says, saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were invested, they were excited, they wanted to witness the life of this child, this one who was born to be king. And so they came into the house, and they brought him gifts. They brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it says that they fell down and worshipped him. They did not come merely to see him. They came to honor him. They came to worship him. Not only to honor him with their gifts, but to worship him by kneeling bowing in front of him, this child who had been born king of the Jews. Herod, on the other hand, also sought out the child, but for a different reason. Later in verse 13, Joseph is warned in a dream, and in the dream he hears this, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, For Herod is about to search for the child, which is what the wise men had been doing. They've been seeking him. They've been searching for him. But Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Herod wants to get rid of any rival to his throne. Anyone who would replace him, anyone who would usurp him, anyone who would would divide the people's loyalty and take it away from Herod, He wants to put a stop to that. He wants to nip that in the bud. So he is about to seek the child to destroy him. And so he sends soldiers to Bethlehem to do just that. One thing we don't often notice, one little detail we don't often pay attention to in in the story, is that the wise men tell Herod... When they saw the star rise. And Herod uses that information to calculate how old the child must be at this time. And so it says in verse 16, uh, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So I mentioned earlier that the the nativity seeks to capture all the wonder and awe and mystery of the birth of Jesus. One of the ways it does that is by kind of fudging the facts a little bit, right? The wise men who are usually in the nativity weren't there when Jesus was born, right? They came later, perhaps a year or so later, certainly by the time that Herod realized he had been duped by the wise men and needed to take action without them coming back and telling him exactly where the child was, thought the baby could be as old as two years old. So he uh, sends to have all the children in that region, two years old and under, destroyed because he is so committed to making sure that no 
other king would replace him. Now, those two different responses, those two different reasons for seeking out Jesus are instructive for us, perhaps in in deeper ways than we might normally think. Both the wise men and Herod received revelation about the birth of Jesus. For the wise men, it was the star. The star revealed to them that this child had been born. For Herod, it was the wise men coming and announcing the significance of the star and then hearing from the Bible scholars where this child would be born. Both of them received revelation, received information about the birth of the Savior King. We too have received that revelation. We've received it through God's Word. And all the things around us that remind us of Christmas and its meaning and significance are telling us, are preaching to us, are revealing to us that God's Son has come for us. He has been born, He became a man, and He did that in order to save us. The question is, how are we going to respond to Him and why? The wise men responded to that revelation not with indifference, which, you know, at one level we could have understood if they were like, well, that's really neat, but we're not Jewish. He's the king of the Jews. I mean, we'll note it down in our little notebooks that we saw this star, but we're not going to do anything about it. They didn't shrug their shoulders. They weren't indifferent at no doubt great cost to themselves and at great sacrifice, they came and sought out Jesus and worshipped him. Herod, on the other hand, of course, sought to destroy him, wanted to remove him, and as, as extreme as a response as that is. Let me ask you a question. Is there now, or has there ever been, in your heart, Some hostility to the idea that Jesus should be in charge instead of you? Because at its root, that's the same as what's going on in Herod's heart. We like to read this story with Herod as the horrible villain that we can't imagine such a terrible response to Jesus. But but here's the truth. There's a little bit of that response in all of us. Because we all have a little bit of the serpent in all of us, right? That that sin nature that we're all born with, that scoffs and gets its feathers ruffled at the idea of anybody else being in charge of us besides us. What do we do with that? So the good news is that if Herod, even Herod, if he had recognized that anger and animosity, that resistance to the idea of Jesus as king, if he had recognized that as wrong and asked God for mercy and bowed before that child king like the wise men did, and owned up to the fact that there was something in him that that resisted the idea of somebody else being king besides him, even Herod would have been forgiven. Even Herod would have received mercy 
Because that's the kind of king that Jesus is. How are we going to respond to the truth that Jesus is the king? Are we, are we going to greet that truth with indifference? Shrug our shoulders, maybe be interested for a day or two, it is Christmas after all. And then just go on about our lives doing what we want, living as if Jesus had not come. Or, like the wise men, will we bow before him? Will we sacrifice for him? Will we seek him out? Will we desire to know him, to see him, to be in his presence like they did? That's what the Christmas story is calling us to. But, and not only that, right, but also reminding us that that little bit of resistance, that, that sin nature that's inside of us, he, he came to take care of that. That's the whole reason why he's here. Now, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and, it, and it's, it's, it's easy to overlook the significance of where he was born, what he was called, the way uh, some of the details of the story work out. For example, it, did you notice that when the wise men came to Jesus or came to Jerusalem, they said, "We've come to see the King. We saw his star, and we've come to see the King." And Herod immediately said, "Well, where is the Christ to be born?" He didn't say, where's the king to be born? That's what they said. He said, where's the Christ to be born? The reason for that is because the Jews knew, even Herod knew, that when the Christ was born, the Messiah, the anointed one, promised in the Old Testament, that he would be the king. And part of why they knew that is because God had promised to David that the Messiah would come from his line and he would be a king like David was, but he would be greater than David. His kingdom would last forever and he would reign as king over his people forever. So when it says that in Micah 5, that the the Bible scholars quote there in verse 5 and 6, when it says in Micah 5 that he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judah or Judea, both of those places are significant. Both of those places also signal who this child is. Because all the way back in the book of Genesis, it was clear that the kings of Israel would come from the tribe of Judah. Jacob prophesied about his son Judah that from his offspring, from his tribe, the tribe of Judah, the kings would come. It says in uh, Genesis 49.10, the scepter, which of course is what a king holds to signify his rule. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He was born in Judah because he was the king. He was born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David, because he is the offspring of David, the one promised from David's line who would reign on David's throne. So he was born a king in the place of kings, right? From, the, from a line of kings to be the ultimate king, the king of kings. But not everyone was excited to hear that, and Herod wasn't the only one who resisted it. If Jesus was born as a king, he lived knowing he was the king, and he died unlike any other king. 
That when Jesus went to the cross, so he was born, he grew up, he was baptized by John, he began to preach, he performed miracles that not only showed what his kingdom would be like, but also showed what kind of king he would be, a king of uh, great power, because he was God in the flesh, but also of great compassion, because our God is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And yet at the end of his earthly ministry and his earthly life, the very idea of Jesus being king was mocked as people prepared to put him to death. We know that Jesus suffered, we know that he was flogged, we know all that happens, but one of the things we don't often think about is what the Roman soldiers were doing as they flogged and persecuted Jesus. They also mocked him as king. In Matthew, later in Matthew, Matthew 27, it says, The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Herod was terrified of the idea of Jesus as king. The Roman soldiers saw it as a joke. No way could this guy from this little place be any kind of great king. That's why the crown of thorns. That's why the scarlet robe. That's why the reed in his hand, a sort of mockery of a king's scepter. They laughed at the idea of Jesus as a king. And his own people rejected him as king, like Herod did. When Jesus is standing before Pilate, just before his crucifixion, and Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, there's no reason to put him to death, but the religious leaders there determined to make sure that they put an end to Jesus. John tells us this, he says, from then on Pilate sought to release him. Right? So Pilate's trying to get Jesus off the hook. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So they're trying to set up Jesus and Caesar in contrast and trying to make Pilate decide, are you going to be on Caesar's side and get rid of Jesus? Because that's your job, right? You're here to represent Caesar. So it says, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. And it says, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Which is exactly who he is. But they cried out, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king, but Caesar. His own people rejected the Savior king that God had promised in favor of the pagan king 
who ruled over them. But his death on the cross was not some terrible cosmic tragedy. It's not a, it is, it's not a sad story. It doesn't end on a tragic note. When the Bible scholars read that prophecy from Micah about where Jesus was going to be born, one of the things that prophecy said was this, from you, Bethlehem, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Jesus said about himself before he went to the cross that he is the good shepherd. That a shepherd and a king are not, not opposites in the way the Bible thinks of things, talks about things. Right? David himself was a shepherd before he became king. And a shepherd is a, is a wonderful image of what it means to be a king because a shepherd has to care for and lead and provide for a flock just like a king has to has to provide for and and lead and care for a people. And so Jesus said in John 10, he said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus goes to the cross, mocked as a king, rejected as a king, but dies unlike any other king to secure the salvation of his flock, of his sheep. Again, anyone, even if Herod had done this, anyone who comes to Jesus confessing their sin, trusting in him, receives full pardon, receives full forgiveness. That's why Jesus came. But he came not only to die and not only to rise, he also came to reign. So after his resurrection, which, by the way, is no more incredible than his virgin birth, right? These go together. Jesus was born of a virgin. He rose from the dead. If you can believe one, you can believe the other, right? And we should believe both. Both of those are the work of God. They're both supernatural, significant, and ultimately saving events because they're all part of how Jesus accomplished our salvation But here's what Jesus says after his resurrection. He meets with his disciples in Galilee, and he says to them in Matthew 28, we we normally skip to the part where he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. But before he says that, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does that mean? It means he's the king. And not just a king, but the king. The king of heaven and earth, the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords. And that is why the proper response to Jesus is not only worship, but also allegiance. Not only sacrifice, right? but worship. He has the right to reign and the right to pardon. And the right to give eternal life to all those who come to him and trust him. 
So that's what the Christmas story invites us to do. To come to Jesus. To worship Jesus. To trust in Jesus. To confess our sin to Jesus. To confess our need for mercy to Jesus. To confess the worthiness of Jesus. To receive all worship and honor and glory. To come and worship Christ the Savior King. Let's pray.